0: Just a quick note before today's show. While we have transformed our entire platform to respond to the ongoing crisis in Myanmar, Increasing our production of both podcast episodes and blogs, we cannot continue without your support. Please consider making a donation or contributing as a volunteer to support our active engagement at this critical time. joined with Derek Pyle on this episode of Insight Myanmar Podcast. Derek has been a Theravada meditator for a number of years and was engaged with Alan Sinake on the Buddhist Humanitarian Project, which was centered on relief towards the Rohingya community several years ago. We'll get into this and much more on the topic of meditation practice in the West and engaged engaged Buddhism in general. With that, Derek, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Insight Me My Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. It's really good to be here.
0: Yeah, so let's get in first to your background in spiritual practice and meditation uh, before looking at some of the social activities you've been doing, and engagement in the world. Can you share a bit about what led to an interest in Buddhism yourself and then what forms of practice or traditions you went through? to take on as a practitioner.
1: Sure. So I was raised in a, um, in a Buddhist family. Uh, my, my, my own ancestry is, you know, European, European American, but my, my parents were followers of Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, and so there was a, um, uh, they had a weekly sitting group in, in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh that met at our house in the suburbs of the, california bay area growing up and so that was you know i remember like the eating meditation was my favorite i think i would join the sangha when we got to eat a cookie very mindfully i would, I would come and sit in um and i remember um visiting plum village as a as a kid and seeing um uh ty speak uh when he came to visit uh, spirit rock also also in the bay area kind of in the in the Earlier days of Spirit Rock. This is the in the nineties, and um, and then for myself, I really started to engage with the practice more deeply when I was a a, a teenager. I think, I think, I think when I was thirteen, there there was um, this is now kind of the early two thousands. There were um, meditation retreats for teens being organized on the West Coast that had. It kind of started on the east coast and at, at the time the buddhist peace fellowship were the ones holding that folks like um temple smith and diana winston and i think marv belzer and so i, I sat my first uh meditation retreat which was tailored toward teens so it was a mixture of silent practice and um, and uh like what you call relational mindfulness as well as there were like workshops on like drugs and alcohol and sexuality, you know, all the kinds of things teens are like interested in and thinking about. Um, and that was really cool. That was a really cool community. And the flavor of those retreats was really, um, really inspired by, I think, uh, folks like Temple and Marv. I remember hearing them just tell these really beautiful stories of, um, Time spent in in Burma practicing, and I also really connected with a with a teacher there named Heather Sunberg, who was um, uh, authorized to teach in a, a Thai forest. She's a lay teacher, but authorized to teach in a Thai forest um, lineage. And so the that became kind of my. She, I, I practiced really closely with her for a lot of years, and and then eventually found myself um, just kind of checking out a, a range of different. Teachers and traditions and lived with a Tibetan monk for a while and, you know, all these different kinds of things. And, um, but these days feel kind of most at home in the in the community around Aloka Vihara, which is a bhikkhuni monastery, a forest monastery. Um, that's reclaiming the, the bhikkhuni lineage uh, here, here uh, also in California. And um, yeah, yeah. And I think over the course of that, Sort of have also sat like, thinking about the the Burmese thread uh, when I've sat longer retreats, you know, of a couple weeks to a couple months. Generally, that's that's often been with teachers that are really steeped in uh, Burmese Burmese traditions, folks like Ponte Kipapano or um, or lay teachers at places like uh, IMS Insight Meditation Society who are teaching. Um, mahasi saida methods or saida tradition or things like things like that so that's always been that's been part of my uh, path as well
0: Mm, Right. So that's interesting. You, a lot of foreigners, a lot of Westerners, when they come to meditation, they're really breaking the mold of their family and community and conditioning, sometimes even rebelling to take on something like meditation. But for you, it sounds like that was the fabric within which you were raised as uh, your parents and community and early childhood that Buddhist practice and meditation have been somewhat native to you from your early years in family life. Is that so?
1: yeah, I think so. Um, I think yeah, it's certainly it's certainly always been there. I mean we grew up, you know Thich not Han who recently passed away. We grew up every every night saying, uh, this food is a gift of the whole universe, the sky and much hard work. May we live in a, you know, may we live in a way that we're worthy to receive it. may we take our unskilled states of mind, especially our greed accept this food as the path of practice. That was the, the dinnertime prayer every night growing up as a kid, You know, which which then we would say, hey, men. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. So I'm wondering also what benefits you've seen to derive in your life from devoting yourself to a Buddhist practice.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, I mean, in a way it's hard to know because it's like, it's so there wasn't exactly a before and after, right? There's just sort of been this, like, this um, circle of, you know, engaged in one way and then another way. And, and there's certainly been years where I've been, felt less connected to the practice and, and, and more connected in other years. But um, I think that a lot of my just general orientation to... You know, thinking about something like suffering, or or the imper, you know, friends passing away, or kind of seeing these kind you know, as you as you grow up, it's being a teenager is rough, and you know, losing friends and family members is difficult, and and sort of the 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 four noble truths having a a fundamental um, having that as an orientation to like sort of understand these you know, universal experiences, I think has certainly been, um, important. Um, I think also, um, I'm very interested in both through my personal experience as well as my sort of social and political worldview or whatever you want to call it in interested in alternatives to kind of the traditional mental health system. Um, and I think that sort of engaging with um, being connected to a, uh, this tradition that goes on for, uh, you know, a couple thousand years and is not, it's a way of thinking about the heart and mind, but is not um, uh, psychology. It is not, you know, it, it was not created it doesn't have anything to do with insurance companies, (laughs) you know, nobody'd ever heard of Freud or Skinner, you know, any of these sort of traditions that have influenced um, like the U S mental health system. I mean, of course, now there's a lot of interest in mindfulness, but, but really a a fundamentally different orientation toward thinking about the mind and heart. And I think also um, I think for me, I've always been really motivated by sort of a, I don't think capitalism's working out too good, you know. I don't think like this sort of endless consumerism is working out too well or making people happy, and and so have it. You know, I think there's sort of a, especially somewhere like the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, um, as well as like you go and spend time in a in a monastery, um, whether that's somewhere like a local vihara or um, I visited a, you know a couple like Thai, you know, eth- more ethnically Thai monasteries that are here in the States. And um, it's just a very different orientation, you know, to be able to, to go and visit a place for a week or, you know, and there's work to be done and things to be done. and But no one's like, there's not a bill at the end of it, you know, or there's not a bill before it. Yeah.
0: Mm, Right. So the practice for you was never just a a practice that was on the cushion, but it had these elements of uh, economic, political, social, psychological, emotional, in addition to the, the whole spiritual aspect. These were all kind of intertwined, it sounds like. And that leads to the next question, which is looking at engaged Buddhism, what has been called the term capital E, capital B has been called engaged Buddhism in the world. And uh, this is something that you're, uh, you mentioned working with Alan Sinake. He, he's been quite at the forefront for many years of coining and developing and enacting this term of engaged Buddhism that I think is probably understood to varying extents by other meditators and Buddhists, and perhaps even disparaged by, by some that think it's not real Buddhism. But the term, I think, means different things to different people, what exactly is meant by engaged Buddhism. So for you, how would you come to define what engaged Buddhism is for you?
1: The orientation I've always had towards Buddhism is that, um, is that you have the part on the cushion and then almost a way you put that to the test, right? Like if you have these, um, you put the fruit, the fruits of your practice, you sort of check them out in the world by like, oh, do I actually... Do I actually have this equanimity, or whatever you know? Um, and I think that's very much that—that that was very much always just that's always just been the orientation. I think that's that's really strong in in the Thai forest tradition. Someone like Ajahn Cha, and I think Ajahn Jimnian, who's who's um, Heather had a, was was part of her lineage, and um, and then true in you know sort of the the lay dharma scene i think people are into that kind of thing too and and certainly in the the yeah the teen the teen meditation world that i was introduced to because of that relational mindfulness and stuff like that again it's really in there but i think i think engaged buddhism if someone came to me and said what is engaged buddhism i think it would also include this um this sort of lineage and history like these relationships that have been built over over time and these. Groups so like that would certainly include Thich Han and his and his work and then his kind of like cross pollination with um, people like Dr. King right there's like this relationship and and history there in the U.S. civil rights movement and the resistance to the Vietnam War like and his role and you know there's like there's like history and lineages there and and certainly Alan Sanaki would be included in that and I think like the yeah, like the the sort of Bay Area Zen traditions, which which Alan is is a part of, would would be in there too. Like I think of the um, I had forgotten, you know, I was a hospice volunteer for uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of years, and and I'd forgotten that like there's there's a there's a there's some folks in thinking about engaged Buddhism that would call something like hospice a a form of that, you know. Um, and, and certainly that's something that, that, again, this kind of San Francisco, uh, Zen community knows about. And, um, so yeah, I think it's this, I think it's this history and lineage of people, people who are either using Buddhism, sort of, you could organize within Buddhism for, uh, peace or justice or healing or any of these kinds of things like, Mahagos after, after the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, thinking about how, how do we move forward as a country? And, and I think using Buddhism within that. and and then I think there's other folks that sort of, um, and I would certainly include myself in this when I'm out, uh, involved in, you know, I'm involved in like a street outreach project here and in, in Southern Oregon that's working with unhoused folks. And, um, Buddhism informs me in doing that, and informs my worldview. And and you know, I'm not out there giving out uh, Buddhist tracts or anything. But it's sort of there's Buddhists who, be, through their practice, get inspired to to do uh, X, Y, or Z things that we might call engaged. That's kind of what that's what comes to mind for me.
0: Mm, right, and I think for some practitioners in the West, there some have come to see meditation. More as a solitary pursuit, and I think you, one can go into the historical roots of that a little bit uh, with the, the how so many practitioners came to Buddhism to meditation by these intensive silent retreats that were often heavily focused on on sitting, and and so their conception of the practice has really been something that is inside, that is solitary. I think I. Uh, w- one of the things that really shaped my initial practice and in understanding or believing this was a phrase of the teacher by saying something like, "You've been, you've been having your eyes open throughout your life, and now during this practice, you're going to have your eyes closed and for the first time look within." And I just took that so much to heart to mean that. I had kind of been wasting a lot of my life that had been always looking outside, seeking things, grabbing onto things, being interested in things. And I think there was a tendency, and I don't think I'm alone in that, in in being more inward as a reaction to how much one was living outside before. But then as one goes on, it starts to, the, the entire practice has the danger of becoming strictly a solitary pursuit. And uh, and and not so much looking at where it's taken outside the cushion, or or there's some limits or boundaries, um, insofar as one is able to sit and, and how far it goes. And so for you, it, it sounds like from the beginning this was never really a problem, or never really an issue. It seems like it sounds like the, the way that you found it and the way it was introduced from your parents and your community. And and as you you mentioned, there's no real before and after with you as there certainly is for me and for many others uh, with the way you were raised. But uh, your practice did take on a certain kind of uh, priority of being... Um, of being not just on the cushion in the practice hall or walking meditation, but in, in your own solitary nature of it, but also in having this outgrowth of being engaged and being involved. And so why do you think for you particularly it, this uh this, it developed in this way which is quite different from how it's been for many other practitioners where it has uh as in my case and many others it's brought them to be more inward facing more more focused on the solitary and then having some years later to look at where that balance lies in
1: yeah that's a good question i think um i mean i would say for me it, it's come and gone in in Waves, you know. I think my my own path has felt more. Um, I think it's maybe a Rilke poem that's that uh, is like I live my life in concentric circles or something like that. I, I seem to recall like sort of maybe Joanna Macy talking about that that sort of is. But um, so there's been these sort of this flow or where, where my you know certainly sitting a a month long silent retreat. I'm not, a uh, it's very much closing the eyes you know, and things like that. And I've really loved the, the time I've been able to, to spend in, in practice like that. But, um, I, th- you know, one, one image that comes to mind, I remember, um, the first monastic, uh, that I really remember, well, no, I guess he wasn't the first, but, but one of the, like the moment I remember the first time I remember really kind of being inspired by someone in the robes and being a monastic and, um, was this monk who had, who had, uh, actually connected through the, through the little sangha that met at our house and then, um, ordained at Plum Village with Thich Nhat Hanh and and I remember seeing him come back to visit in robes and, you know, thinking that was really cool. And, um, and just, yeah, like being really interested in his shoes. He had these biodegradable shoes, which I thought was really you know, cool. And I, you know, I was like, you know, 12 or 13, but, but this, this, um, monk, I, I, I don't know what his, he ended up changing his name a couple of times. So I, I don't know what name he's using these days, but he, after spending a number of, of years at plum village he he um he said i'm gonna he decided he he basically took a vow uh that he would he would go into a hermitage you know and and not come out until he was fully enlightened and um and he through the kind of ticnahan community he he knew uh A man who had had some some property in vermont that i think was yeah had been close to that community um i don't know the the total history but he he lived there for years and years and years and as far as i know i i visited him once we've lost touch but as far as i know he's still there you know and so like that you don't that like to think about that right that sort of journey of like you don't have there isn't Thich Nhat Hanh is sort of if you think of 20th century engaged buddhism his name is you know that lineage and his what he represents is certainly up there but then you also have a, a a monastic from that tradition being so inspired through through the path that he's practicing there to then take a vow like that and really really go for it you know i mean it it's sort of um, yeah it just doesn't it just doesn't feel as I know for people that, you know I know there's lots of people have lots of there's I'm I'm not saying my perspective is the only one but from my, from my vantage point it's just always seemed like you could do one or the other and they're both they're both good <laughs> you know
0: mm, yeah I think that's a great way to put it and I I think right I'm I'm reflecting back on my question I I didn't uh I think my question might have sounded slanted towards the the benefit, uh, even, even questioning the benefit of the intensive practice, which in, in no way I meant, of course, my life has been completely transformed and changed by those words that I've been looking outside my entire life. And now I'm to look inside. I mean, that, that was just a profound shift of every way that I approach things. I, I, I think I also had some maturing to do to understand this did not mean that instead of looking outside, I now look inside, that there was still a balance to be found that I think a lot of, a lot of Western meditators do struggle with as they shift away from doing something that is so transformative and powerful uh, as they learn it, that where that integration fits in into a healthy and balanced lifestyle for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think for me, practicing with Heather Sundberg, um, for a lot of years, I mean, I think this was, and and she, like a lot of lay teachers here in the states, has had a number of different teachers, but but really um, was really close with Ajahn Jinian for for a number of years in, in Thai Forest tradition, who's sort of a a wild man, and you know, uh, uh, um, but he- I remember just Heather Heather saying that Dharma is everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you can't. You, it's everywhere. It and. And, and her, and I think her, and passing along like Ajahn Jiminyan's perspective, that it doesn't really matter if it's this form or that form. She, you know, and we're saying the form, the form's not what's important, you know. Um, that's just been, that's been inspiring. And I think it's the same way for me, like with sutta study. Like there's been times where sutta study has been really important and and there's other times where it's like man my head just really hurts you know i got to <laughs> stop play <laughs> i got right. and just being okay with with that um, and i think for me i'm just curious too so like i think for for a while i was maybe more exclusively within kind of the lay insight Meditation scene, and then being like, Well, what's going on in these monasteries? And what's mm-hmm. going on, you know, going to visit like being in the Bay Area and going to, um, like one of the Tipitaka chanting events where monastics from all, um, different, uh, all different Theravada backgrounds and ethnicities and traditions are coming together to like chant the Tipitaka for like three or four days, you know. Um, and just seeing, like, the – and the devotion of, like, you know, one the event I went to with that of, like, uh, there was a um, largely Thai, uh, you know, ethnically Thai com- community that was cooking all the meals and, like – and the depth of dharma that you'll find, like, with, like, talking to a cook at a monastery or a retreat center mm-hmm. or something like that, you know, and, like – or a retreat manager or, just like, there's – I think, especially in the well, in in the lay centers and, and then in the monasteries too, just the different, like the deep, deep wisdom and practice of people who manifest that through just cooking or helping do a spreadsheet, or you know, it's like you really when you hang out in those places, you see that much more differently than when you're just the, um, you know, I think the the lay insight scene, we can get kind of fixated on like. That person's the teacher, and I listen mm-hmm. to them. You know, because you're only on retreat, right? You don't even talk to anyone else, right? Like you just go on retreat and you sort of. Leave. Mm-hmm. But but when you're in those more community settings, um, it just feels it just it's it's just so much more. Uh, the Dharma just sort of imbues the the whole thing so much more. Has been my experience, anyways.
0: Yeah. As someone who spent a lot of time in monasteries and meditation centers in this country and others, I really like where you're going with that. I think you're really breaking down these kind of divisions between teacher student practitioner-server, even monastic lay, and just looking at where is the dhamma and where is the practice within the respective activities that one is doing, which I think is a really healthy, beautiful way to look at it. And I think is also... Uh, I think it's also very reflective of what I found in Myanmar, where the the nature of the practice takes on, you can't really draw these lines around. When the practice first came to the West, uh, I think they did their best to try to create a so-called practice environment to bring the essentials into uh, an experience and a space where people could follow it and go ahead themselves. And I think that was very beneficial and helpful. However, over the generations and over times it might create some kind of artificial or false dichotomy with some practitioners that there's an on or off or a this or a that. And I think that I think being able to break that down and see the beauty and the possibility and everything and um, you know, and cutting carrots. I mean, I I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of carrots I've cut in Dama kitchens, and uh, just how much I've learned about myself through doing that, and also how uh, how hard that has been as well. Not the cutting, but the, uh, the the so much else that goes into it. So I think that's that's I think you're really hitting on something with that. I and it's interesting talking about this now because my next question was going to go towards asking. What work you've done that you would characterize as engaged Buddhism. That that was the question I prepared. However, with where you're going, you're already starting to break down these categories, and so that question itself might need to be something that's unpacked.
1: I think there is a lot of false dichotomy with um, even the idea of like on the one hand there's this narrative of like people like um, say in the Theravada, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon salzberg bringing the dharma to the west but almost but then there's like well there's there are chinese and japanese buddhist practitioners here for a lot long you know really long time and and um and sort of even thinking about like our orientation of what the what the history and lineages of buddhism in this country is um that's something that I got really interested in. And I don't know if I would call it quite, I don't know if I would, you know, I wouldn't, well, it, it, whether it, whether I would think of it as sort of engaged Buddhism or not, but, but that alone has been really interesting. I, I, I got really, invo- I took on a research project that, it, that ended up being just a, an article for lion's roar, sort of looking at this of like um, thinking about sort of race and the histories of, Buddhism in the States and specifically looking at like meditation, we have this sort of myth that only, I don't know, only white people or only Westerners, whatever that means or whatever, meditate. And if there's Asian American Buddhists, they don't meditate. And it's just, it's just not true. So that's been sort of learning about that and, and educating myself about that has been a really interesting way of um, understanding lineages and trying to share You know, I I try and share some of that with people and I think, um, kind of ties into the, I think the importance of us, which as you certainly do, you know, what your podcast is all about, like looking at these, these questions and, um, that being said, just to, just to sort of talk about what you're, you're asking. I mean, it's interesting. I remember like the, the first time I was, um, arrested for like a sort of civil disobedience. It was, a, it was a protest at the governor's office. So the governor of Oregon um, fighting, uh, opposing and urging the governor to formally you know, come out. Governor um, Kate Brown ran as a climate champion and yet there was this, um, this pipeline and uh, uh, LNG was uh, liquid you know gas um terminal uh jordan cove the jordan cove uh, energy project and pipeline that were that were proposed uh you know fossil fuel infrastructure here in southern oregon and people fought it for a lot of years and um so i was arrested as part of a protest against this it it this um this pipeline and uh our, and what, you know i think there were i think there was like 21 folks who were arrested during the sit in and one of them was a Zen priest in robes, you know, and sort of talking to the other people, we realized that like, um, that I think four of us just happened to be Buddhists. It wasn't like a little Buddhist group had gone together to do this. It was like, we just, Oh, you're a Buddhist too. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) That's interesting. Um, but I think that, um, I think certainly my, my work with, in in terms of sort of engaging more directly with buddhist community my i think my work you know my work with the buddhist humanitarian project and alan Sanaki and during the during the rohingya crisis or the i mean the 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 crisis is ongoing and and has been for many years but but um i think was it 2017 or 2018 that the that the violence was really, really escalating from the mm-hmm. from the Burmese military, and right. um, and being really disturbed by this, and knowing that um, that you know, feeling that I had I had really benefited from practicing with you know with teachers in Mahasi Sayadaw's lineage and um, and Sayadaw Utejnia and um I I don't know if it's true. I had I had been told at one point that Saida Upendita was was a teacher of Aung San Sang Suchi when she was under house arrest. Do you, do you know if that have you ever heard anyone say that? You know if
0: yeah, yeah. I think teacher might be a bit of extrapolation in terms of the what goes into the meaning of the word t- teacher, but definitely mm. Saida Upendita was uh was an inspiration that that they, they did meet. She did read his book when um, when she was there and, and looking at some of the uh, the, the Burmese monastic influences on Aung San Suu Kyi. Say that Pandita was one of three that uh, that influenced her. To what extent? I think this is something that becomes so fascinating to the meditator world is wanting to know, like, well, well what did they teach? What did they talk about? What did she practice? <laughs> what was the, uh, you know, what, what was it that she was doing? But I think this is also the thing that when media outside of Meditator world, the Buddhist world is reporting on this. It's just kind of like, oh, isn't this cute? Isn't this cool? This this, this is her teacher. This is this is what she read. Right. And they don't really get into that kind of nitty gritty like w- we want to. And that's also one of the reasons of the podcast <laughs> is wanting to have people on that it's not and not just like, oh, you're an engaged Buddhist. That's great. Well, let's learn about this. But no, let's let's break down who are your teachers and what have you learned and how have you applied that and what has been hard and wanting to pick that apart because it's it's so much more interesting than just saying like as we usually. Here, like, yeah, that was that was one of her teachers, which is, um, you know, which is certainly true, but it leaves open a number of questions about what exactly was taught, and there that might come out someday. I know someone who has in the inner circle has a bit of that knowledge um, that is not privileged to share. I've heard a couple snippets that are incredibly fascinating that I'm bound by silence to uh, to not give uh, to not. I've been working on them a little slowly to see if that can start to come out, especially now. But um, anyway, sorry to you. You asked a simple question and I gave you a, <laughs> a longer answer. So please go on.
1: No, that's great. That's really that's really interesting. But um, but yeah, I think I think about um, the. You know, maybe what Thich Nhat Hanh would call the in, the interconnectedness of, of of um like when the when you know seeing Buddhist ideology and a and a military that pays homage and uses um uh dana, you know as a like you know goes to pagodas and the monastery as a way you know part as part of its image um, and then conducting such intense violence and. And to me, it really felt like, um, you know, I've I've never been to Myanmar, but but through relationships and friends and community, it feels like, oh, these are like these are our cousins over here, and I've I've been a benefit and a recipient of so much um, from these lineages and and these practices that then that then I sort of have this responsibility to respond in some way and and so i think that was really um that yeah i think that was one of the more certainly one of the more involved projects i've had sort of working formally within the buddhist world and thinking about you know and and so through that i um reached out to alan sanaki who was um uh you know for a lot of years has has been one of the really um Great links between sort of socially engaged Buddhism in the states and um, and different humanitarian and uh, and engaged Buddhist practices in Burma and and elsewhere in the world too. But um, you know, at the time, Alan had had um, created a letter, you know, sort of condemning the condemning the violence and calling on the the. Uh, Burmese State Sangha to do something right and 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 just sort of you know I just sort of reached out we didn't know each other at all but I sort of wrote him and said hey what if we this letter is great what if we turned it into a petition you know and we sort of talked about well if it's going to be a petition then you know people sign it but then maybe they feel moved to make a donation that could go to to fund you know to support um refugees uh you know living in the in the refugee camps in Bangladesh that, you know, Rohingyas that are fleeing the country and things like that. And sort of thinking about like a range of ways we could help, um, you know, I think with, with sort of community organizing or whatever, it's really helped. Alan would say, you have to give people something to do, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this awareness, but then there's like, oh, you can do this thing and, and starting out. Yeah. You could sign this thing. That's pretty easy. You know, (laughs) most people can sign something. Mm -hmm. They have the time to do that. And then, There, I haven't really come across much discussion, like Buddhist discussion of transformative justice. But but I feel like it's um, the ideas about uh, karma. There are ideas about karma and interconnectedness and causes and conditions, and that I think are really interesting. Like if we and hatred does not cease by hatred, right? This this, um, this teaching from the Buddha. Like what are what are other ways you can't beat violence out of somebody, right? Or things like that.
0: Um, I I think for many people in in the West, meditation and spirituality are, uh, to many, are private pursuits in one sense. It's often been remarked in general that religion and politics are sensitive areas and not suitable for really any kind of family get-together or sit-down meal, things that are often avoided due to the, the touchiness of them. So what I'm thinking is while you've personally chosen to connect your Buddhist practice with these wider social concerns, other meditators have not. And my question is, do you think that it's fair game and just simply a personal choice depending on the individual, the type of practice they're doing, their tradition, their teacher, that it's really up to the individual to decide if they have that firewall and have that kind of um, their their own practice according to uh, uh, to that desire to want to want to keep it away from all the stuff in the world, or do you think, on the other hand, that there's some degree of social consciousness and engagement that is really necessary and important on some mm-hmm. level of practice, and that if one is not engaging even a little bit in that direction that it points to something not quite working in the practice. Where, where would you land on that?
1: Yeah, I think it depends. I think, I think someone, you know, I think if someone is um, up in a cave up in the hills and really like, I'm going to do this, you know, I'm really gonna, I'm really gonna leave the world and I'm really gonna um, go deep in, 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 A more, you know, hermitage kind of setting and, um, or I'm really going to dedicate myself to the monastic path and, and that looks, you know, obviously the monastic path can look a lot of different ways, but, um, but for instance, you know, I think someone's saying uh, electoral politics, that's not my place, you know, like that's too much or whatever. Um, I think there's ways in which I think I have a lot of respect for a lot of different folks engaged in, you know, what I think those we would call more solitary pursuits, you know, certainly living in a cave, right? Or living in a hermitage that's really secluded is... is. Um, I think on the other hand, if it's like... If it's like, let's create a new form of capitalism where we're relentless to our workers, and our, you know, if it's a te- like a tech company, that's like, we're going to work our workers to death and our products are going to be made using sweatshop labor where people are, you know, like taking their own lives to get out of it. Right. Like some of the things we've heard about Apple and iPhones and, um, but all of our, uh, all of our, um, all of our executives go on meditation retreats, you know, we're sort of going to use mindfulness to sort of like grease the wheels of, of capitalism better, you know, or something like that. I think that's like, uh, and and then you're like, well, well, we're not, you know, if, 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 if it's someone in that position or in a position like that, um, saying that, that, uh, human rights is, you know, human rights violations or you know like like violence in in myanmar or police brutality in the states or whatever they're saying well i'm too, i'm a spiritual practitioner so those things aren't my concern you know like on that end it's like no you're, you're just, I, I think i i think you've got i think you're lying to yourself you know about, mm-hmm. about what you're doing so i but i think it's up to each of us i think it's in i hopefully in community we're exploring these kinds of things and like and um and we can, uh, in an, in, you know, I'm sure in in a given individual's life, it might their their own, um, you know, think yeah, thinking, thinking for myself, like there was a time where I was really into crystals, you know, sort of gems and minerals and things like that, when I was sort uh, in my early 20s, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then at some point it was like where do these come from? You know, what's going on, what's going on in the process of taking, extracting from the earth that's creating these, does these really fit with my values? You know, I think it's like, Hmm. I think we have, we can be in conversation with our own values and, and um, just sort of figuring it out as time, time goes on. But I think there are, there certainly are, there are lots of ways to practice, um, far from the worldly stream that are really beautiful. And, and on the other hand, there's lots of ways to use spirituality to sort of lie to ourselves and, and, mm-hmm. uh, I- ignore, <laughs> ignore things that, that I think if we, you know, at least for me, when my, um, you know, like like again, to think about the Rohingya violence or and and the, the coup and what what's going on with in Myanmar now with the military. And to me, that it's not it's not my philosophy. It's like it pains me on a on a more on a like an existential level in a way because it's like, oh, am I a part of this lineage? You know, am I a part of this history if I'm claiming to be a Buddhist and to you know have practiced in this way or that way or like. Is this? Am I a part of this? What's my responsibility here? Like, what you know that that um, uh, that I've really had to like wrestle with that. It's been. It
0: feels personal. It doesn't just hmm. feel. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. That last part that you said. So you're you're wrestling with that. It feels personal. It's something that you're you're trying to work out. And then how does that? transfer over to how you look at others and that's to me that's the really delicate difficult question because no one wants to be in a position telling others what they should be doing or thinking or not doing and that's not comfortable really for anyone and so so we don't want to move in any direction of a conversation where we're saying people that take up a meditation practice should be doing this and shouldn't be doing that that's completely inappropriate to me. However, there is a way of looking at it that, and, and this is the essential question of, to what degree is some degree of social engagement and concern about the world around you and your environment or even your local community, how much of that uh, should be impacted and involved through one's meditation practice in order f- to see this this kind of spiritual practice as being something uh, valuable in the world and to oneself. And, and if that's not there, what does that say about what that role of the practice is in the first place? And to what degree is that crossing certain uncomfortable lines of one's own personal choice? And I think you hit on something really valuable that part of this is who you are. You know, I asked this question to Usarna, who was a, a Czech monk in, in Myanmar, and his response was very clear. He said that those that are in a teaching uh, or responsible role absolutely have not just the right, but actually the obligation to stand up and do whatever they can to prevent killing. Those that are in a role of studying or practice or meditation, not so much. It's okay if they're if they're conti- trying to continue with their Buddhist development and, and not involved so much. So I think who one is is very important in looking at the equation. Uh, and, and what, as you said, if someone is, is in the world, is, is in a cave and living a, uh, quite a monastic life, um, bent on uh, striving for the highest levels of liberation, like yes, there, there, there could be a reason for not engaging with this or that, uh, but it, it, it does come back to that kind of uncomfortable question of to what degree is it uh does one want to say that a spiritual component and a buddhist meditation component should involve this or to what degree is this really okay this this is one's own personal choice if they um you know if they're if they're just following a practice or have a personality where they just simply don't want any engagement with these um with uh, with outside issues and they're they're just their spiritual practice takes up that kind of form and
1: yeah. Yeah, it's a, a couple things come to mind. I mean, one like if you know, if we think about for instance um the what's going on in Myanmar with the coup and the military and the the people's resistance and which I find the resistance really inspiring, but if we think about that if we say okay, I want to help um I care about this issue for whatever reason, you know, me, Derek, or me, Buddhist practitioner, (laughs) this has got me going, you know? And like, there's a, yeah, we could go out and say, everyone should care about this. And if you're not, you're doing it wrong. And, but, and I think that's, you know, you're like, that doesn't quite feel right. But I think a different approach would be um, just making it exciting and accessible. Right. So I could like, um, Go to my local sangha and be like, "Hey, we're going to show this movie, and it's a really interesting movie, and you're going to learn more about this." And at the at the end, if you feel moved, you can sign this petition, or you know, like like presenting it, you could you can present something and make it interesting and compelling and accessible without it being uh, dogmatic or lecturing, right? So that that's sort of one thought there. Um, and two, I think that uh, I mean I can't think of the sutta offhand, but the Buddha does list um, in the you know in the Pali Canon somewhere. That there's a list of like qualities that 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 are uh, that a spiritual friend um, embodies, and I'm thinking one of them is like is that they're open open to feedback. You know, I think, I think this like giving and receiving feedback is like actually listed as, as sort of a quality of like a spiritual friendship. And so I think there's there's also a difference too in terms of like, I think how close we are with a person and what our relationship is and and what, um, certainly for me, if, if there's ways in my practice or in my life that I'm really like missing the mark or just not being honest with myself, I hope that my friends you know and they certainly are sometimes you know but that the, they can take me aside and be like hey i think you're i think you're kind of off the mark here you know and 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 share their own perspective in that in a way that feel that that's hopefully supporting both of us kind of growing together you know i think um um if i was in a predominantly white sangha that really valued um, relationships with the police you know for whatever we do police community engagement days i don't know <laughs> and then like you know if they sort of are taking a position there right like if a sangha was was flying a, uh say a blue lives matter flag which i think is sort of is the police response to black lives matter right you're sort of taking a sometimes you are taking a side or a community is taking a side um in which case i think engaging in like critical discussion and um and even you know some of this gets into too like thinking about um uh what's called you know nonviolent direct action, thinking about like um which is some you know what we sort of think of with the US civil rights movement. Um and I remember ta- talking to Alan Sinaki about this and um, Talking about direct action, he's like, you know, direct action is a way of applying force that is not um, that is not violence. So um, it's a it's a way of applying pressure and force that's not violence. And I think I think there are times where we might where it's where we might decide to use tactics like that um, to to because it's you know if you're if you're sort of saying like if we were to think about, um, I just saw a report that, that teak, um, wood, right? Teak wood being exported from Myanmar. And there are U S companies that are, um, that are importing this. And, and some of them are, um, going around sanctions, right? Like existing sanctions from the U S. So they're, they're not legally supposed to be buying this wood. Um, and these sanctions are related to not funding the, military and not funding the violence in Myanmar Um, and I think we could we might decide you know that I I could see Buddhist practitioners or whoever folks that want to be in solidarity with with people in Myanmar saying this situation is so extreme this money funding um, the violence is so extreme that actually we do need to kind of like apply some pressure to these um, these importers or of teak wood, right? Like, and, and how, like, we do need to tell them what to do essentially, right? Because it's wrong, right? We're like, no, like, I think there are times where we, where it makes sense to pick up, um, to use a tactic in advocating for social change that does involve more direct pressure like that. And um, if it's, me lecturing my family members at the dinner table it's, and they don't actually care about these, you know, it's like, it comes off pretty weird. And, you know, not, it doesn't make for a great dinner. But, but I think there are, to me, I think we should be open to kind of a range of tactics of, of if we're thinking about social change and we're concerned about social change, thinking about a range of tactics. Um, and maybe there are times where, where a more confrontational, approach uh actually you know like if if you were to say um get a bunch of people to blockade a teak factory and shut it down for a day you know no one actually gets hurt by doing that right like no one is dying from that but you could say this pressure is actually important because it's um taking a stand against the violence that this company is funding you know um I don't know. I think it would be interesting to see more in this moment of um, of of the incredible violence being perpetuated by the military in Myanmar. I think it would be really interesting to for Buddhist community and and other you know anyone um, wants to kind of think about that to be thinking about what are the things we could do in the states. What what are the ways we could apply pressure? Um, what are the tactics? What are the what are the different approaches we could take? to really think about um how we might be how we might intervene in a way that actually moves that reduces violence right like that reduces the human rights abuses that reduces the um the monasteries in myanmar being disrupted by airstrikes right like you can't it's pretty hard to meditate over there if if, uh when there's, you know, I can only imagine um, with airstrikes going around and things like that. So,
0: anyways, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's not just the airstrikes. I I talk to so many people that have a a very deep uh, multi-year meditation practice who grew up in that environment, and person after person has told me they don't they can't rest inside their head for even a minute and i i hear that i haven't experienced it or maybe there have been moments of extreme trauma in in my life where i can sympathize with just a really disruptive moment that that took some time for the practice to kick in but I, I, i i can listen i can hear it i simply can't imagine what it's like to to not be able to meditate for days upon weeks upon months and uh and to have that level of trauma that even experienced meditators are not able to rest inside themselves, and are are looking for relief and stability through talking to peers or aromatherapy or other types of more external methods, which I think is is a uh, is a sign of wisdom actually that one is realizing that the mind isn't able to work at some level. Or as one, as one doctor explained to me as well, he said, look, I, I, I simply can't observe the breath. It's, it's impossible. I, I, my mind is so traumatic. And and with what I'm dealing with, the stress is so high. And one teacher, he's in the Mogok tradition, one teacher told me, oh, just notice the numbness in your legs. That's enough. Just notice when you're standing, there's numbness. And okay, I do that. And, and so there's these different ways to, um, to work with it. And speaking of Myanmar and looking at Myanmar specifically, you've written and, and spoken before about you personally feeling a debt to Myanmar and, and you referenced before how you've done meditation practice in the tradition of Mahasi Seda and Seda Utejania. And beyond your personal debt to Myanmar, the wider practitioner and, dare I say, mindfulness community also has some kind of debt to Myanmar at this moment. Can you expand on your thinking of what you mean by that debt?
1: There's a sutta where the, where the Buddha is discussing um, the debt one has to their parents, right? And it's, um, for those of us who didn't grow up in a nuclear family, which, which I did, but you know, for folks who didn't, it might not quite translate but the metaphor is is um is you have this incredible debt to your parents right for being born they've given you this human life and um and it's like if you carried them on you carried both your parents on your back for you know years and years and years and years like even then you wouldn't be able to repay the debt but if you if you shared the Dharma with them, that actually would right. And the sort of idea that the Dharma is priceless, and the, the, all of these kinds of ideas, um, uh, to me, then it's like, well, if if the the yeah the Dharma is worth so much, then then or can't even be priced, it's sort of like we have a debt to those who've shared it with us, right? We've sort of um, we're indebted to those who've shared it with us, and um, and you're totally right. I mean, here in the, I think you know, like John Cabot Zen, who's like credited as the um, the sort of uh, originator, I guess. You know, I don't know the term, but of of mindfulness based stress reduction, which is like the base, like the basis of so much. Um, secular mindfulness practice i i think I, I was interviewing joseph goldstein for project johnson he's like yeah you know john had the had that idea while he was on retreated ims <laughs> i don't know the full story but it's like that's um that's a pretty strong link you know uh to to um to you know that 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 the just thinking of the link between sort of theravada and and the mind the secular mindfulness stuff and um, I think one of the great shortcomings of um, a lot of uh, meditation and, and Dhamma teachings in, in the United States is that it, it. I think a lot of folks aren't aware of or have even forgotten um, or maybe in some cases hidden the lineages and the traditions and the actual sense of like where this stuff comes from. And I think that um, gets into, you know, there's like, there's sort of like uh imperial there's like imperial that's a story of race and imperialism and cl- like there's a lot of reasons for that but i think it's really important to to me it feels really important and also just much more enriching to to really know where all this is coming from and and to be in conversation with as much as we can um with the history and the lineages and and the origins of this stuff and um, so if, if we have this, 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 um, these Theravada traditions and teachers and communities that have shared uh, so much, then it feels like um, it just feels like a really natural response to me, anyways. But you know, sort of weird, but to to say, um, oh, this is this is what happens. Like Dana, this is the, this is this is the. The result of giving and of receiving generosity is that that one feels in their own heart that um, that it's uh, you know the right thing. I don't know the the right term, but that we should return that, right? That like that that's it's there's a reciprocal relationship, um, and that's part of what makes it. That's part of what. To me, that's part of what the Dhamma is—is understanding like the depth of these reciprocal, reciprocal and intertwined relationships that we're in um, with one another.
0: Mm, And you wrote an article in the Lion's Roar, which is a Buddhist publication, called "Why Buddhists Should Support the Resistance in Myanmar." So pretty clear where you stand on that. Can you share a bit what you argued in this op-ed?
1: Yeah, I think. think i was saying something similar that look we've really we're really um we're really intertwined if you're if you're a if you're a buddhist alive today in the united states chances are your practice is entwined in some way with um with burma and that could even just be that you sort of the increased popularity of buddhism right now right i think like the burmese traditions have have contributed a lot to like the fact that you can uh 10% happier what's is he a cnn host you know that you can like you can like turn on mainstream news and like see a piece about buddhism i think is or our meditation mindfulness um and i think so it's coming from coming from there and i think the the um I think it is also about um I think it is also about like colonialism, especially as a as a white person and someone who's not of Southeast Asian um ancestry, that is not that doesn't have ancestry that's traditionally linked to Buddhism, um, like locating myself within that feels like uh it's important um, it's important to remain connected as much as I can to to these communities and these places that these traditions come from and, and you look at like something like the United Nations and these sort of ideas of like that there are international you know that there are human rights that we're thinking about internationally and then when you also think about our um, the ways in which financial investments fund the violence. Like when you think about all, all of these ways in which we're um, connected, I think, I think the, my understanding, and I'm sure you know a lot more about this, but it's like people really, really tried to stop this coup early on. And it was um, through the incredible civil, um, civil disobedience movement, the CDM and um, part of with the sense of like, like nobody, I don't think anyone wants civil war. I don't think anyone at the beginning of the coup was like, wouldn't it be great if in if in eight months we could launch a people's defensive war uh, in response to this? I think they, you know, I imagine people are like, let's stop this coup as soon as possible so we don't have to do that out of a place of desperation. And I think, um, you know, my understanding, like, like looking at a group like Progressive Voice Myanmar, who I, I get updates from and, you know, their sense of being, um, look, it's, it's really the international community's, uh, inability to sanction and respond to, um, the coup is what's forced us as, as people, uh, in Myanmar to have to fight, um, like to have to launch a people's defensive war, essentially, you know, and like that, that it's like, it's because our backs are against the wall. And we haven't had the the support um, to do this other ways, and and so I think it's it's um, it's thinking about our sort of like inactive... What what is the effect of our uh, what is the the cumulative effect, right, of um, Buddhists in the United States not being willing or able for whatever reason to inter, to support. Um, to support, uh, I think we could say nonviolent solutions, right? Like our inability to support the CDM, for instance, um, and the san- the sanctions from our own country, uh, or to pass the Better Burma Act or whatever, has led to this increasingly desperate situation in in Myanmar where the military continues to just go uh be able to wreak so much havoc and destruction and terror um that it's that that the lack of support ha- is, that there's a cause and effect you know whether we should or we shouldn't but that there's a cause and effect in acknowledging that there is that there is this cause and effect and that there has been a really concerted plea for um people in the United States to to do something, and by and large, um, we haven't. You know, people are saying, "Hey, help us out. We need the internet." People in Myanmar, from my understanding, are saying we need the international community's support. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, we haven't been a- we haven't been able to figure it out. Uh, by and large, obviously, there's been a lot of good things, but by and large, um, we're not there.
0: Yeah. No. No. We're absolutely not. And you, you you characterize the history of the past year correctly. That the Burmese people went out and protested in a wide range of creative, nonviolent ways. From you know, from uh, from the civil disobedience movement to protests in the streets to almost a festival, carnival-like atmosphere to... uh, And then when things got more serious, doing they had slow driving day or drop your vegetables in the street day or things that that would just try to impede the normal runnings of society to nonviolently and creatively show that they weren't following along. And then the military started shooting people in the head in the middle of the street. They started abducting and torturing people. They started uh, beating people to death, uh, doctors, monks, uh, children, elderly, on and on. Just a, a list of deplorable, inhumane actions that anyone who's been watching the Tamada for the past number of decades just knew was coming down the line because this is the kind of evil that we're dealing with on a, on a par with a Nazi regime or imperial Japanese And so we're now at the point that there have been some groups that have taken up some measure of arm resistance, whether that's actually uh, going through training oneself or whether it's supporting in any number of indirect ways. And one of the things you wrote to me before the interview was that, uh, quote, it took a while to work through my own feelings, how to locate myself in relation to the resistance, end quote. And I, 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 I presume that when you're speaking about uh, situating yourself and you're understanding the resistance, you're speaking probably more about the arm resistance than the the nonviolent part, which obviously you're a a major advocate of. This has been something incredibly challenging for Buddhists and meditators everywhere to determine the role of some kind of a a defense, um, a right to protect that uh, when faced with such evil, as, as as you know, as you listen to, that was the subject of most of my interview with Bhikkhu Bodhi is where those lines fell. And so uh, and, and so you, as with many Buddhists and meditators around the world, in Myanmar and outside, reconciling with that is extremely difficult and, and is quite a personal journey. Um, and then, yeah,
1: more more difficult to locate my own, thoughts and feelings in, in relation to the, um, the people's defensive war and things like that. And and I think part of the difficulty is like, is like, well, who asked me, you know, like part of it is like, it's not even really like, it's not even really my, um, like, well, who cares what I think, you know, like, like, it's not, I'm not the one living through this, right? Mo- like, none of this is about me or my own values or even, the, you know, the people I talk to on a daily basis here in the, the United States that, you know, um, that are not involved in these struggles. But I think... Um, I think in general, one of one of the things I find myself wrestling with... Um, there's a book called full spectrum resistance by a, by a author, Eric McVeigh. And he looks at all of these different, um, resistance movements, you know, like sort of, uh, and, and, um, including say, um, like civil rights and fights for black liberation in the, in the fifties and sixties and seventies in the States. And then also, um, the African national Congress fighting to end apartheid in South Africa, but then also like mentioning like farmers rebellions in Oklahoma in the 1930, you know, there's like all these different, and he's looking at, he's talking about full spectrum resistance as like all these different ways we can, um, fight for a better world. And, uh, and his sort of take is like that essentially, resistance movements are um, more effective, right? Like more likely to sort of uh, win? I don't know. More likely to, to, to create, you know, to sort of, uh, oh, you know, um, create a world that folks want to live in and, and push back against um, causes of violence and oppression. He says resistance movements are more effective if there is... An amount of armed resistance, but not not the uh, that that can't be the um, overwhelming. But that can't be the the main tactic used, right? Like if it's the main tactic used, it just leads to these really horrible. Um, uh, you know, like think about the the Khmer Rouge or something, right? Like that's a terrible revolution. I don't think anyone wants that kind of revolution. Um But that a degree of armed resistance uh, actually makes um, mass mobilization more effective and and like, I think part of my own wrestling is I think I actually believe that that's probably true, but I don't want it to be true and I don't want to be one of the people <laughs> doing the armed resistance and I don't and I don't want, um, I don't even quite know how to situate myself. Like what is a nonviolent resistance movement? And does that actually exist? You know, like does, and so I, I picked up this book because um, someone like Dr. King is in the States. He's like the epitome of this, right? He's like, we can, we can overthrow our oppressors, um, but nonviolently. And so, and so, And I think often that's used to then sort of say, and anyone who's not doing that, you're doing it wrong because you should be, um, and, and there's other, you know, I think there's a lot of folks who have sort of pointed to, is that really the history? Like, is that really what happened in the civil rights movement in the States? And so I I picked up this book, um, this nonviolent stuff will get you killed by Charles Cobb, who was a field secretary for SNCC, the student nonviolent coordinating committee, um, you know, work. You know, active during the civil rights movement in the in the South in the United States in the um, 50s and 60s. And and this whole book, he's also a, a quite a renowned journalist and uh, a you know African American man. And, um, and his premise is that sort of the civil rights movement used. Um, used nonviolent resistance as a tactic right like voter registration he, he tells stories of people going to vote voter registration and that you know like this old grandma she's going to vote and she would say to to some to one of the SNCC organizers or whatever here hold my gun while i go to the courthouse right like he like he's saying that actually in the south in 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 black southern culture at that time um guns were very much a part of it and you, and 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 black people being armed as a way to um to protect themselves against Klansmen doing night night rides you know that that was just part of the culture so actually while there was the someone like dr king giving these really eloquent speeches which even him you know by the time he's sort of like the end of his life he's inviting stokely carmichael who coined the term black power to be there and you know when he's giving the speech against the Vietnam War. I mean, his his own positions are changing over time, and um, more complicated than history sometimes leaves it. But I think to get back to this, it, it's sort of like there were leaders um, in the civil rights movement who really took really firm principled stances around um, nonviolence, and their rhetoric was really rooted in that. Um, but at the same time, the rank and file members had a whole range of perspectives on what they thought was effective and not effective and necessary. And, um, and, uh, so it's sort of like, does, does one of the places I've come to it is like, does this, it's a question and I don't know the answer, but like, does this quote unquote nonviolent, can we do socially engaged or politically engaged or fight for liberation, you know, sort of people's liberation. Can we do that? And, um, only what, like, is it sort of a myth to say that you can do that and never be associated with anything that, that involves violence. And I think when we think about like the uprising for black lives in the, in the last Couple, you know, last summer here in the states, and um, people were like, "If you use nine 9-1, one, like nine one one, if you call the police, their perspective, you know, folks in the sort of fighting for black liberation today, many people's perspective is like, there's this sort of inherent violence going on around the way police target black communities, and and you know, of course, many other communities as well, and." If you use, if you call nine one one, you're sort of supporting a system of violence, you know. And like, the, so there's sort of these questions around like, are there neutral, are there neutral nonviolent positions? I don't really know. You know, I just sort of, I don't really know as much. Um, but I think where I've where I've landed and in, in in specific relationship to um, the struggle in Myanmar, it's like. I can, um, I can, writing an article like that, it's like, I can support, you know, I can support people raising awareness about the, the struggle in Myanmar and what's going in Myanmar. Like I can write an article, um, I can help, you know, in the small, like we can help, like we thinking more collectively, we could help fundraise for, um, uh, People who are having, you you know, help fundraise for like humanitarian needs, right? Like medical supplies that people aren't able to get right now because of the disruption of people's daily lives. Um, We can pressure our legislators to support the um, Burma Act or for folks in the international community and other groups to recognize the legitimacy of the national unity government or for the U.N. or the, um, the international courts to uh, recognize, you know, the legitimacy of the unit. Like, all of, there's all these things that you and I and, you know, that I know you're doing much more than I, like, that we can do um, that don't involve, uh, uh, you know, um, picking up a gun or whatever, right? That don't involve armed resistance. And it's sort of like, it's so it just feels less my overall feelings on the situation and the the people's defensive war i remember i was talking to a couple friends um in in uh burma you know they're burmese and and saying well we you know and i said um this was before this was before the people's defensive war had officially sort of been launched and I remember saying something like, well, yeah, we I don't want I don't want a civil war to break out. You know, I was sort of talking about my own values and and I just immediately felt so dumb. You know, I mean they cuz they, were, they cause they're like w- they didn't they don't want a civil war to break out. It's not like they're excited about a civil war, you know, but uh, people feel the necessity of their survival. You know, um, and, and as you mentioned, like, I, I can only imagine the, the, um, the realities folks are having to live in right now, you know, like knowing that, like, yeah, knowing that people who are out in the streets demonstrating have disappeared in midnight raids and are being tortured and, you know, like the, the, um, and not knowing if a friend is actually uh, passing along information, you know, to help support these midnight raids, like just these horrific situations that people are finding themselves in. And um, there's so many different ways that we can help and support uh, the resistance or humanitarian aid or uh, just awareness. Like there's so many different ways we can, we can engage with these issues, it's still a moving target. I would certainly say that. It's still a moving, it's still a unfolding uh, series of questions.
0: Right, and I think one of the things I talked about in my discussion with Alan Sanake was the idea that, some of these so-called nonviolent movements like with Mandela or Martin Luther King or Gandhi, they, his, uh, the, the way they come to be described later emphasizes this nonviolent part of it almost like it was the nonviolence that won and it obscures the fact that there were other groups uh, also trying to bring about their own independence and their own freedom and dignity that were not necessarily adhering to this, and so in some ways, the nonviolent won because it was in contrast to these other movements that were seen as more dangerous and reckless. And so, uh, the, the the way that the history has come to us since is that well, nonviolence is noble, and and that's why it's won, that that that's why it won. And so, it, it's a bit more complicated than that. Also, from talking to other uh, uh, to to activists that are engaging in, in Myanmar and finding different ways to do it, there they have discussed. Uh, you know, as you said, no one wants a civil war, and I've heard time and again, "Tell us what we can do that we haven't done. Tell us what we have not tried. If there is a suggestion that can be short of an armed resistance, tell us what that is, because we want to do it." And, of course, they're left entirely to themselves. There, there, there is very little international support at this time beyond statements. And th- it is hard for any observer to think of what they haven't tried. You know, in my discuss- I had two podcast discussions with Bhikkhu Bodhi, and there were certain moments where he would say, well, why not do this or why not try this? And I would then give him examples of, uh, of ways that, that this was attempted and failed. And... Um, and that, uh, and that, this was also not a viable option, and it was a, a rather heartbreaking conversation because we ended with silence. You know, we we ended with uh, no real thought of wisdom left for um, for for how a, a a nonviolent ethical stand can proceed given the the pure evil they're against. And so, I think even if we're not involved directly with the struggle. It's not a question, are we going to take arms or not? It's not even a question for the Burmese, are they going to take arms or not? Because I know many people that are supportive very indirectly of what's going on. Uh, I think it's really a mental kind of attitude to take on. Where do I stand with this? Where do I situate? Not so much, what do I do, but what do I feel about it and how do I respond?
1: You know, me as some random white dude living in Oregon calling up people in mermaids like, hey, have you tried this or have you tried that or doing that on Twitter or whatever? It's like, well, there's definitely stuff in the States we haven't tried, right? Like we the, the reports that um, Justice for Myanmar, you know, Justice for Myanmar has been doing these, as I'm sure you know, but just to kind of say they've been doing these really incredible Reports on the financial, like who's financing the the Burmese military, right? Like, where's that money coming from? And here are the companies that are that are uh, extracting teak wood, and imp- here's who's importing it to the states. Here's some. Of, I think they had some of the freight lines that are shipping it, right? Like, here's who's then taking that in manufacturing and manufacturing it and turning it into like a product that consumers can buy. And I think we could. Um, we certainly could like think about ways to put pressure on those companies more, you know, like we could think about, uh, okay, if I'm living in Los Angeles and here's the port that's importing this, I could fly to the neighborhood. I could do petitions. I could, uh, get together. I think like ruckus society has a lot of interesting, um, materials around like campaign organizing that can include direct action, like include just a range of tactics. And, um, we could say people could decide to, um, yeah, people could just do any number of things to like put pressure on, uh, on these. You could, um, go to the store selling these teak furnitures and, put a sticker on every single one that says, did you know this, you know, this chair funded genocide <laughs> right? or like whatever, you know, like there's, there's a lot of creative ways people could, um, could think about this that we're, we're not doing. And it kind of puts the question back on us of like, what haven't we tried? Right. Like as the kind of the international community, um, what could if if we're really concerned about this issue? What are what more could we try that uh, that might be helpful? You know.
0: Um, right, and that leads to these questions of what can we do? What can someone in Oregon or anywhere for that matter, from a distance, do if? To to engage, there's uh, obviously there's there's a reason to engage. This is a terrible thing happening, and people might be stirred to movement, uh, listening to this and to want to do something. What range of actions could you suggest that that people could take on who care about the issue?
1: One is just raising more awareness about this, right? So, like if we're a part of a sangha or um, on a college campus or uh, we write a letter to our newspaper like there's all kinds of different ways you could raise more awareness flyers stickers like whatever but just keeping this on people's hearts and minds right like as the as the um, our news cycle right like there's a lot of news like there'll be moments where there's a lot of news and of course when the coup first started there was a lot of news from Myanmar but just keeping it in people's awareness like this is still going on this is still there. Are still people fighting for their freedom and for democracy and for human rights and for um, indigenous ethnic sovereignty and like all these things that people are fighting for in in Myanmar. So raising awareness, I think, is one thing. Um, and then, of course, anytime you write an article or something like that, it's always good to give people a next step, right? So I think like fundraising is another really simple. Um, relatively simple thing to do like i know this is something you've done a lot of of that's connected to the podcast of raising funds and i think that's something so like a sangha could host a movie night and then at the end of the you know about um you know a film about the the struggle in myanmar and then at the end of it pass the hat and then get the money over there right like that's those are relatively simple things people could do um i think another another strat another approach would be like more, a more legislative kind of going more to legislative um, actions so like there's I think there's a couple petitions right now pressuring the, the better um, the Burma Act is um, is a piece of um, in, in the states it's a piece of legislation that's been proposed that includes both uh, increasing sanctions um, against, uh military connected um I think individuals and organizations you, and and then also there in the in the Burma act there's um there's funding for for humanitarian aid and and so that's been proposed but it hasn't been passed yet and so like one could at the simplest level you could just sign the petition and circulate that petition in your sangha and col- you know collect a few more signatures for it um at another bigger picture level let's say someone was working in a uh, you know a big retreat center or something like um getting that retreat center to endorse it and fig- you know like figuring out a little bit more grassroots um uh like grass tops and as we talk about grass tops it's like the bigger the bigger organizations that have more say right um So there's that, there's, I think there's also some of the other things I hear people asking for, and and I'm sure you have no, you know many other ideas, but like, there's still, there's still the national unity government is the people's, is the people's government, right? There's sort of this like fight for, um, for recognition who actually is in charge of Burma, you know, Myanmar is sort of a the is, is sort of a question like does the military actually represent the people or does the national unity government actually sort of have um, sovereignty uh, have uh, legitimacy um, over the country and and um, one of the so there are ways we could you know again a Sangha could make a statement saying we recognize this um, the national unity government and and then they could share that with their, uh, you know, local politicians or state politicians. But we as people could also apply this pressure. We don't have to wait for Congress to pass legislative, um, to pass legislative, uh, to pass legislation. We could we could also just say, "Hey, let's uh, do some community organizing against." Um, against teakwood or against uh you know chevron i guess chevron's off the hook we can i mean we can, we can find other reasons to boycott chevron but but for now they're withdrawn you know so um so we could also really look at look at what as individuals and communities i think especially if we happen to live here um like to go back to los angeles i i you know looking at um looking at the uh the loss like I can't think of the name offhand, but if you look at this recent teak report from Justice Furman, or um, one of the big companies there is, I think it's an import company is located in Los Angeles. So if you have, if you have if you had a series of sangas for instance, and a, and a few community groups um, coming together to raise awareness within the city about that company, um, and maybe people are also um, doing some protests at, at the at the physical location, you know, really, like, applying some pressure there, um, that could potentially be an effective, you know, all these military regimes and violence run on, uh,
0: like, they, they have to be funded pressures. I think the things you're talking about are more, like, political-economic, which are great, and involve a certain degree of, of awareness and knowledge and... Um... and and knowing the factors and conditions that are leading to empower the Tatmadan to try to take those down and bring awareness. And I I think that's wonderful. I think there's so many different pathways and ways to engage though. Uh, Financial donation is obviously always helpful. But what I keep coming back to is something that so many Burmese have told me and that's just the human connection of kindness. Just to check in with friends that are there, ask them how they're doing, how their day was, let them know that you're a, a safe person that you have, uh, you have time and space for them to listen to them and have a good day or a bad day or hard things they need to talk about. And I think simply showing up it, it is so powerful just on its own and doesn't involve any money. and doesn't involve any real self-education. It's just, just simply being there for someone who is facing a difficult set of circumstances. I think that is a way to support uh, and, and should not be overlooked and something that we hear time and again from people over there, how alone they feel and, and how much, how helpful it is to know that someone is thinking and caring about them personally and their country generally. Uh, on, in those regards, I think simply listening to this podcast fits in that category. It's bearing witness, it's bringing awareness, bringing knowledge and understanding, and perhaps sharing it with someone else to listen or on social media or writing something about it. I I just think there's, or if, if one is not, uh, one's brain doesn't work in that way and more artistically poetry and, um, uh, video editing, um, uh, whatever else is out there, music. Uh, there are so many creative ways to be able to contribute. And I've seen so many of them from a cafe, the, the New Moon Cooperative Cafe in Olympia, Washington, which uh, purchased a number of the artwork that was for sale. And uh, the um, from the art auction we did in New York with the proceeds going to humanitarian missions. But beyond the financial contribution, they are a cafe in their mission that's committed uh, to speaking out against injustice and oppression. And so looking away from just the financial support they've given to have a business that is also educating people on what is going on there and standing by them. So wonderful and valuable. And I've, I've just heard so many creative stories from so many people and businesses and individuals and initiatives, you know, anything from bake sales to magazines, to film festivals, to, poetry readings whatever that i think that there uh, once one makes the decision that one wants to engage then it's just a question of what am i good at what are my limitations what time do i have available what what's easy for me what do i take joy in i think taking joy in something is is very important because if you take on a Action of advocacy that is hard for you and your heart's not really in it, it's going to be harder to make it sustainable. But if it's something that is, in essence, who you are, if you are a, a person who loves poetry, then it makes a lot of sense to go as far as you can in poetry, whether it's your own or, or magazines or engaging others or getting words out there or, or, or whatever it is, there's uh, and of course we know the regime is killing so many of its poets. Uh, so I think whatever, wherever one finds joy Uh, and after deciding to engage, there are all these pathways open to being able to pursue and and find the most appropriate course of action.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. And I think, yeah, I mean, it kind of goes, like when we think about a, to think about social movements, I mean, I think they're always, they're an ecosystem. And so there's all these different there's all these different kinds of. Um, there's all these different kinds of ways. I think, yeah, like the, the art, the art auction that you were involved in, and the, um, the yeah, just seeing the art, right? Like how how vital art is to, uh, to resistance movements and change and people's liberation. I think is a is a really great example of all the different creative ways that um, that we can do these things in this is a very large movement for resistance and, and liberation and democracy and all, you know, this is a huge struggle and there's no, there's no one person in charge, you know, and like, it's not like for, listen, you know, listeners that may be sitting there sort of thinking, well, I really want to help, but I don't, am, you know, am I the, uh, I you know, like, the, the, there might not be anyone who comes and gives you the authority to make the art, you know, or to, or to bring the petition around, but it might be okay to just. Uh, I think in general there is an ask that we here in the um, in the international community get involved, and um, and just it's just like we can just. When I wrote to Alan Sinaki, I was just a random dude, you know. I mean, I had my own back, but he didn't know me at all. I was just like, "Hey, I think I know how to build websites. You know, what if we turn this?" Pet- what if we turn this letter into a petition and I can help build the website? And, you know, the, the, yeah, there's just lots of ways to to get involved.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so the last question I want to ask is, you wrote previously that, quote, liberalism is well-suited to take superficial Buddhist ideology and use it as an excuse for inaction, end quote. Can you share more what you meant by this? Um.
1: There are many organizations, for instance, that are sort of um, nominally in favor of progressive change, but are actually maybe preventing that change from happening. And I think what, you, what we were talking about and what you mentioned talking about with Alan as well, like um, sort of the way Dr. King's legacy has been rewritten, right? Or the or the legacy of the civil rights movement. even. Even the, um, you know, like we could even read the, we could even hear in school the history of the civil rights movement and think it was all Dr. King and not like these thousands and thousands of people, right, who like mobilized and. um, And I think there's this, there's this. like a, li- a liberal approach to social change can, can sometimes um, freeze people, I think. Like, um, it can, uh, it can, like, it, it's again this idea that there is a neutral position. And, and and questioning, like, when is there a neutral position, and when are there? When isn't there one? Like, there are moments where uh, you have to pick a side. Like, you you're either that's part of the idea. Is like, there are moments where your you have to decide. Um, okay, my my friend is involved in the. Uh, is going out into the streets, well, and do I? And I know that this is illegal right now. Do I report them to the military, and they might be disappeared, and uh, or do I do I actually go out with them, you know, or do I do nothing? Do I, you know, do you know that there that there are these moments where um, we're actually not neutral that, that or that neutrality might not exist in the way that we kind of think it does um and I think that like uh, uh you know I I would say sort of being like being white for instance like I'm either on one level I'm either uh just sort of like going along with all these benefits of systemic uh, white supremacy or I'm fighting against them you know and um, and I think one of the things that we see from um, kind of this liberal this again and this is this is using the word liberal sort of in in the context of kind of more... Radical or revolutionary social movement change, and then of course, of course, there's just this long history of people, um, people's resistance. You know what I mean? Like, like a, Burma just has this incredible history of that. But I was really struck by how quickly every, people got on board with the CDM and the. Um, you know, the national strikes and the, the, like, do you, do you have a sense of what, um, in the States, there's people who talk about like Gene Sharp. Are you familiar with his work? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Gene, so like in the States, there's sort of people that are like, you know, if we just follow the Gene Sharp playbook, this is how we resist coups, (laughs) you know, this is, and this works, you know what I mean? Um, but do you have a sense of like what what kind of the are there um, and maybe the answer is no and it's just a it's just a whole ecosystem but are there kind of like guiding influences that kind of whether they're theories or strategies or belief systems or organizations or whatever that kind of laid some of the foundation to where um, that was so possible to happen as part of the resistance where are there particular lineages that you see that resistance coming from and how would you describe what those are? And maybe an example here in the States would be like we have in the uprising for black lives last summer, I would say like the black lives matter movement and the killings of Trayvon Martin and Other and Mike Brown and other and Ferguson, like really, kind of, seemed to set the stage for then this uprising that lasted for months and months and months. Does that make sense? That was kind of like part of the lineage of how that idea got so embedded in the in the culture, and then was was sort of brewing. Um, And like police abolition as a concept, I think, like a group like Critical Resistance and the work that's been done around the prison abolition movement and thinking about the prison industrial complex, like sort of set the stage for police abolition to become something that would become like an everyday household word. And I guess I'm curious if you have any sense of, um, the sort of, yeah, the lineages that sort of underlied CDM for instance, being so, so, uh, uh, set the stage for that in, in the way that it was. Does that make sense?
0: Well, I mean, I think all this stuff happened quite organically. I don't think there was any playbook for it because this is a generation that never faced anything like this. And so they just went along and, you know, CBM happened because with the doctors, the doctors were the ones who led it and people followed and protected them and then followed their example. And uh, I think the, the overall resistance movement has grown out of that and has, has been, I think in, in the annals to come, the what the Burmese did as a resistance will be studied everywhere, uh, and yet it failed. Uh, it failed because they are facing a fascist, inhumane, evil enemy that does not respect or is not cowed by any measure of uh, of humanity, and that uh, and why the soldiers follow the orders would be something else to look at, their conditioning and their, uh, their belief in, in the fascist state and in the, the importance of the Tatmadaw being able to provide the unity they purport to provide. But um, whatever the reason, it, um, their, their most ingenious ways of nonviolent did not work anymore. And I don't know what they possibly could have done that was not suggested, you know. I, I, they, they, they did things beyond even anyone's imagination what they could have done, and and uh, and it was simply not respected because, you know, this is uh, I think when nonviolent movie um, when nonviolent movements are studied, uh, the, the the U.S., um, colonial England, South Africa, these are different systems than Nazi Germany or the Tamada. And, uh, and I think whatever value some of those books might have, and I think there are definitely there's much value that those books and strategies do have. I think that the, the nature of a, a city police department in the United States is simply incomparable to contrast against the organization of the Tamada and those looking at what the protest movements are doing only go so far because, whatever has happened in this country, the police are not openly shooting in the head people on multiple people on multiple days in the street and beating them to death in broad daylight. That is simply not happening here. Without re- and where there is no recourse, not only there is no recourse, but they are told by, their, by the highest authorities to do that. And so I think these are just very different systems that where the, the analogy only goes so far.
1: Yeah, that's really that's really interesting, and I mean, it makes me think about like um, I think in in the states, the folks that you know this like this concept the the conception of folks who view themselves as anti fascist and are like thinking about what it means to fight threats of fascism that is maybe much more linked to like um arising you know is much more linked to looking at things like nazi germany and like what what it what it means to prevent something like that happening which i think we're yeah like you're saying they are night and day differences um between the reality of myanmar currently and sort of what's what's happening in the states i just think it's important that we all keep keep collaborating together and keep working together, um, across, you know, really across the, across the ocean here. And, and, and then together, um, just to be, uh, just to keep, keep figuring out the things we can do, um, in all of this and the ways we can, uh, support the really incredible i mean i just have so much respect and um, admiration for the the courage and creativity and dedication that um folks in myanmar uh have that are that are resisting resisting the resisting the violence there and fighting for human rights and fighting for um ethnic sovereignty and all of these things it's just doing i i find it um you know heartbreaking and terrifying that this is a reality people have to live in um and also incredibly inspiring that people are so um so courageous and creative and um rambunctious you know in the midst of all of that like it's just really uh it's really it's really powerful so that's um you know yeah i think that i think that's sort of the final thing i would say
0: well thank you well thank you thank you so much for spending time with us today and really appreciate it
1: yeah thank you for having me
0: We want to present a special opportunity for donors who are committed to our show. While we want to stress that we greatly appreciate donations of any size, larger donations, of course, are particularly helpful. For that reason, we're encouraging donors with means to consider sponsoring a full episode for a one-time donation of $350 or more. Donations in this category can include a dedication, if you'd like, to a person or organization as well as a quotation or expression. Or, your generous donation can be anonymous, the choice is yours. In either case, it would give you the satisfaction of knowing that you enabled at least one more episode to be produced for the benefit of the people of Myanmar who have suffered so much at the hands of the military. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions. Aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, internally displaced person IDP camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, that's b-e-t-t-e-r-b-u-r-m-a.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts, or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give it another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.
2: To be so sad that I do know that I
0: do
2: I am a man of Yarodana yeah, dana niña miña da loga mesiña. Malaya nani yahoda, ayodayega
0: muda muda ge,